Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome back to Eli Reed's Salambo. This is chapter 13, and we're headed towards the end game now. Once again, we got probably just a few too many details about military maneuvers, but we are starting to get a whiff of the serious desperation of this war now. Flaubert's description at the beginning of this chapter of the state of the vanquished barbarians reads like classic accounts of shell shock. Though, of course, when Flaubert was writing, World War I, where that term became known, was still decades away. And we also start getting a real up-close sense of the cruelty bred by war. And we also get another fantastic set of ridiculously exotic place names. And, less happily, an explanation of how different ethnicities putrefy after death. Chapter 12, The Aqueduct. Twelve hours afterwards, all that remained of the mercenaries was a heap of wounded, dead, and dying. Hamilcar had suddenly emerged from the bottom of the gorge and again descended the western slope that looked towards Hippo Zoritis, and the space being broader at this spot, he had taken care to draw the barbarians into it. Narhavas had encompassed them with his horse. The Sufit, meanwhile, drove them back and crushed them. Then, too, they were conquered beforehand by the loss of the Zamph. Even those who cared nothing about it had experienced anguish and something akin to enfeeblement. Hamilcar, not indulging his pride by holding the field of battle, had retired a little further off on the left to some heights from which he commanded them. The shape of the camps could be recognized by their sloping palisades, A long heap of black cinders was smoking on the side of the Libyans. The devastated soil showed undulations like the sea, and the tents with their tattered canvas looked like dim ships half lost in the breakers. Cuirasses, forks, clarions, pieces of wood, iron and brass, corn, straw, and garments were scattered about among the corpses. Here and there a phalarica on the point of extinction burned against a heap of baggage. In some places, the earth was hidden with shields. Horses' carcasses succeeded one another like a series of hillocks. Legs 
Sandals, arms, and coats of mail were to be seen, with heads held in their helmets by the chin pieces and rolling about like balls. Heads of hair were hanging on the thorns. Elephants were lying with their towers in pools of blood, with entrails exposed and gasping. The foot trod on slimy things, and there were swamps of mud, although no rain had fallen. This confusion of dead bodies covered the whole mountain, from top to bottom. Those who survived stirred as little as the dead. Squatting in unequal groups, they looked at one another, scared and without speaking. The lake of Hippozoritis shone at the end of a long meadow beneath the setting sun. To the right, an agglomeration of white houses extended beyond a girdle of walls. Then the sea spread out indefinitely, and the barbarians, with their chins in their hands, sighed as they thought of their native lands. A cloud of gray dust was falling. The evening wind blew, then every breast dilated, and as the freshness increased, the vermin might be seen to forsake the dead, who were colder now, and to run over the hot sand. Crows, looking towards the dying, rested motionless on the tops of the big stones, When night had fallen, yellow-haired dogs, those unclean beasts which followed the armies, came quite softly into the midst of the barbarians. At first they licked the clots of blood on the still tepid stumps, and soon they began to devour the corpses, biting into the stomachs, first of all. The fugitives reappeared one by one, like shadows. The women also ventured to return, for there were still some of them left, especially among the Libyans, in spite of the dreadful massacre of them by the Numidians. Some took ropes' ends and lighted them to use as torches. Others held crossed pikes. The corpses were placed upon these and were conveyed apart. They were found lying stretched in long lines, on their backs, with their mouths open and their lances beside them, or else they were piled up pell-mell so that it was often necessary to dig out a whole heap in order to discover those they were wanting. Then the torch would be passed slowly over their faces. They had received complicated wounds from hideous weapons. Greenish strips hung from their foreheads. They were cut in pieces, crushed to the marrow, blue from strangulation, or broadly cleft by the elephant's ivory. Although they had died at almost the same time, there existed differences between their various states of corruption. The men of the north were puffed up with livid swellings, while the more nervous Africans looked as though they had been smoked and were already drying up. The mercenaries might be recognized by the tattooing on their hands. The old soldiers of Antiochus displayed a sparrowhawk, those who had served in Egypt, the head of the Cynocephalus, those who had served with the princes of Asia, a hatchet, a pomegranate, or a hammer. Those who had served in the Greek republics, the side view of a citadel or the name of an archon. And some were to be seen whose arms were entirely covered with these multiplied symbols, which mingled with their scars and their recent wounds. Four great funeral piles were erected for the men of Latin race, the Samnites, Etruscans, Campanians, and Brutians. The Greeks dug pits with the points of their swords. The Spartans removed their red cloaks and wrapped them round the dead. The Athenians laid them out with their faces towards the rising sun. The Cantabrians buried them beneath a heap of pebbles. 
The Nasimonians bent them double with ox-leather thongs, and the Garamantians went and interred them on the shore so that they might be perpetually washed by the waves. But the Latins were grieved that they could not collect the ashes in urns. The nomads regretted the heat of the sands in which the bodies were mummified, and the Celts, the three rude stones beneath a rainy sky at the end of an islet-covered gulf. Vociferations arose, followed by the lengthened silence. This was to oblige the souls to return. And then the shouting was resumed persistently at regular intervals. They made excuses to the dead for their inability to honor them as the rites prescribed, for owing to this deprivation they would pass for infinite periods through all kinds of chances and metamorphoses. They questioned them and asked them what they desired. Others loaded them with abuse for having allowed themselves to be conquered. The bloodless faces lying back here and there on wrecks of armor showed pale in the light of the great funeral pile. Tears provoked tears. The sobs became shriller. The recognitions and embracings more frantic. Women stretched themselves on the corpses, mouth to mouth and brow to brow. It was necessary to beat them in order to make them withdraw when the earth was being thrown in. They blackened their cheeks. They cut off their hair. They drew their own blood and poured it into the pits. They gashed themselves in imitation of the wounds that disfigured the dead. Roarings burst forth through the crashings of the cymbals. Some snatched off their amulets and spat upon them. The dying rolled in the bloody mire, biting their mutilated fists in their rage. And forty-three Samnites, quite a sacred spring, cut one another's throats like gladiators. Soon wood for the funeral piles failed. The flames were extinguished. Every spot was occupied. And weary from shouting, weakened, tottering, they fell asleep close to their dead brethren, those who still clung to life, full of anxieties, and the others desiring never to wake again. In the grayness of the dawn, some soldiers appeared on the outskirts of the barbarians and filed past with their helmets raised on the points of their pikes. They saluted the mercenaries and asked them whether they had no messages to send to their native lands. Others approached, and the barbarians recognized some of their former companions. The Sufit had proposed to all the captives that they should serve in his troops. Several had fearlessly refused, and quite resolved neither to support them nor to abandon them to the great council, he had sent them away with injunctions to fight no more against Carthage. As to those who had been rendered docile by the fear of tortures, they had been furnished with the weapons taken from the enemy, and they were now presenting themselves to the vanquished, not so much in order to seduce them as out of an impulse of pride and curiosity. At first they told of the good treatment which they had received from the Sufit. The barbarians listened to them with jealousy, although they despised them. And then, at the first words of reproach, the cowards fell into a passion. They showed them from a distance their own swords and cuirasses and invited them with abuse to come and take them. The barbarians picked up flints, all took to flight, and nothing more could be seen on the summit of the mountain except the lance points 
projecting above the edge of the palisades. Then the barbarians were overwhelmed with a grief that was heavier than the humiliation of the defeat. They thought of the emptiness of their courage, and they stood with their eyes fixed and grinding their teeth. The same thought came to them all. They rushed tumultuously upon the Carthaginian prisoners. It chanced that the Sufit soldiers had been unable to discover them, and as he had withdrawn from the field of battle, they were still in the deep pit. They were ranged on the ground, on a flattened spot. Sentries formed a circle around them, and the women were allowed to enter thirty or forty at a time. Wishing to profit by the short time that was allowed to them, they ran from one to the other, uncertain and panting, and then bending over the poor bodies, they struck them with all their might, like washerwomen beating linen. Shrieking their husbands' names, they tore them with their nails and put out their eyes with the bodkins of their hair. The men came next and tortured them from their feet, which they cut off at the ankles, to their foreheads, from which they took crowns of skin to put upon their own heads. The eaters of uncleanness were atrocious in their devices. They envenomed the wounds by pouring into them dust, vinegar, and fragments of pottery. Others waited behind. Blood flowed, and they rejoiced like vintagers round fuming vats. Matho, however, was seated on the ground at the very place where he had happened to be when the battle ended, his elbows on his knees and his temples in his hands. He saw nothing, heard nothing, and had ceased to think. At the shrieks of joy uttered by the crowd, he raised his head. Before him, a strip of canvas caught on a flagpole, and trailing on the ground, sheltered in confused fashion, blankets, carpets, and a lion's skin. He recognized his tent, and he riveted his eyes upon the ground as though Hamilcar's daughter, when she disappeared, had sunk into the earth. The torn canvas flapped in the wind. The long rags of it sometimes passed across his mouth, and he perceived a red mark like the print of a hand. It was the hand of Narhavas, the token of their alliance. Then Matho rose. He took a firebrand which was still smoking and threw it disdainfully upon the wrecks of his tent. And then with the toe of his cothern, he pushed the things which fell out back towards the flame so that nothing might be left. Suddenly, without anyone being able to guess from what point he had sprung up, Spendius reappeared. The former slave had fastened two fragments of a lance against his thigh. He limped with a piteous look, breathing forth complaints the while. Remove that, said Matho to him. I know that you are a brave fellow. For he was so crushed by the injustice of the gods that he had not strength enough to be indignant with men. Spendius beckoned to him and led him to a hollow of the mountain where Xarxus and Autoritus were lying, concealed. They had fled like the slave, the one although he was cruel and the other in spite of his bravery. But who, they said, could have expected the treachery of Narhavas, the burning of the camp of the Libyans, the loss of the Xanth, the sudden attack by Hamilcar, and above all his maneuvers which forced them to return to the bottom of the mountain beneath the instant blows of the Carthaginians, Spendius made no acknowledgment of his terror and persisted in maintaining that his leg was broken. At last the three chiefs and the Shalashim asked one another what decision should now be adopted. Hamilcar closed the road to Carthage against them. They were caught between his soldiers and the provinces belonging to Narhavas. The Tyrian towns would join the conquerors. The barbarians would find themselves driven to the edge of the sea. 
and all those united forces would crush them. This would infallibly happen. Thus, no means presented themselves of avoiding the war. Accordingly, they must prosecute it to the bitter end. But how are they to make the necessity of an interminable battle understood by all these disheartened people who were still bleeding from their wounds? I will undertake that, said Spendius. Two hours afterwards, a man who came from the direction of Hippo Zeritis climbed the mountain at a run. He waved some tablets at arm's length, and as he shouted very loudly, the barbarians surrounded him. The tablets had been dispatched by the Greek soldiers in Sardinia. They recommended their African comrades to watch over Gisco and the other captives. A Samian trader, one Hipponax, coming from Carthage, had informed them that a plot was being organized to promote their escape, and the barbarians were urged to take every precaution. The Republic was powerful. Well, Spendius's stratagem did not succeed at first as he had hoped. This assurance of the new peril, so far from exciting frenzy, raised fears. And remembering Hamilcar's warning lately thrown into their midst, they expected something unlooked for and terrible. The night was spent in great distress. Several even got rid of their weapons so as to soften the suffet when he presented himself. But on the following day, at the third watch, a second runner appeared, still more breathless and blackened with dust. The Greek snatched from his hand a roll of papyrus covered with Phoenician writing. The mercenaries were entreated not to be disheartened. The brave men of Tunis were coming with large reinforcements. Spendius first read the letter three times in succession and held up by two Cappadocians who bore him seated on their shoulders. He had himself conveyed from place to place and reread it. For seven hours he harangued. He reminded the mercenaries of the promises of the great council, the Africans of the cruelties of the stewards, and all the barbarians of the injustice of Carthage. The Sufit's mildness was only a bait to capture them. Those who surrendered would be sold as slaves, and the vanquished would perish under torture. As to flight, what routes could they follow? Not a nation would receive them, whereas by continuing their efforts they would obtain at once freedom, vengeance, and money. And they would not have long to wait, since the people of Tunis, the whole of Libya, was rushing to relieve them. He showed the unrolled papyrus. Look at it. Read. See their promises. I do not lie. Dogs were straying about with their black muzzles all plastered with red. The men's uncovered heads were growing hot in the burning sun. A nauseous smell exhaled from the badly buried corpses. Some even projected from the earth as far as the waste. Spendius called them to witness what he was saying, and then he raised his fists in the direction of Hamilcar. Matho, moreover, was watching him, and to cover his cowardice he displayed an anger, by which he gradually found himself carried away. Devoting himself to the gods, he heaped curses upon the Carthaginians. The torture of the captives was child's play. Why spare them, and be ever dragging this useless cattle after one? No, we must put an end to it. Their designs are known. A single one might ruin us. No pity. Those who are worthy will be known by the speed of their legs and the force of their blows. Then they turned again upon the captives. Several were still in the last throes. They were finished by the thrust of a heel in the mouth or a stab with the point of a javelin. Then they thought of Gisco. Nowhere could he be seen. They were disturbed with anxiety. They 
wished at once to convince themselves of his death and to participate in it. At last, three Samnite shepherds discovered him, at a distance of fifteen paces from the spot where Matho's tent lately stood. They recognized him by his long beard, and they called the rest. Stretched on his back, his arms against his hips, and his knees close together, he looked like a dead man laid out for the tomb. Nevertheless, his wasted sides rose and fell, and his eyes, wide-opened in his pallid face, gazed in a continuous and intolerable fashion. The barbarians looked at him first with great astonishment. Since he had been living in the pit, he had been almost forgotten. Rendered uneasy by old memories, they stood at a distance and did not venture to raise their hands against him. But those who were behind were murmuring and pressed forward when a Garamantian passed through the crowd. He was brandishing a sickle. All understood his thought. Their faces purpled and smitten with shame. They shrieked, Yes, yes! The man with the curved steel approached Chisco. He took his head and, resting it upon his knee, sawed it off with rapid strokes. It fell to great jets of blood made a hole in the dust. Xarxus leaped upon it, and lighter than a leopard ran towards the Carthaginians. Then, when he had covered two-thirds of the mountain, he drew Gisco's head from his breast by the beard, whirled his arm rapidly several times, and the mass, when thrown at last, described a long parabola and disappeared behind the Punic entrenchments. Soon, at the edge of the palisades, there rose two crossed standards, the customary sign for claiming a corpse. Then four heralds, chosen for their width of chest, went out with great clarions, and speaking through the brass tubes, declared that henceforth there would be, between Carthaginians and barbarians, neither faith, pity, nor gods, that they refused all overtures beforehand, and that envoys would be sent back with their hands cut off. Immediately afterwards, Spendius was sent to Hippo Zeritus to procure provisions. The Tyrian city sent them some the same evening. They ate greedily. Then when they were strengthened, they speedily collected the remains of their baggage and their broken arms. The women massed themselves in the center, and, heedless of the wounded, left weeping behind them, they set out along the edge of the shore like a herd of wolves taking its departure. They were marching upon Hippozoritus, resolved to take it, for they had need of a town. Hamilcar, as he perceived them at a distance, had a feeling of despair, in spite of the pride which he experienced in seeing them fly before him. He ought to have attacked them immediately with fresh troops. Another similar day and the war was over. If matters were protracted, they would return with greater strength. The Tyrian towns would join them. His clemency towards the vanquished had been of no avail. He resolved to be pitiless. The same evening he sent the great council a dromedary, laden with bracelets collected from the dead, and with horrible threats ordered another army to be dispatched. All had for a long time believed him lost, so that on learning his victory, well, they felt a stupefaction, which was almost terror. The vaguely announced return of the Xanth completed the wonder. Thus the gods and the... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The might of Carthage seemed now to belong to him. None of his enemies ventured upon complaint or recrimination. Owing to the enthusiasm of some and the pusillanimity of the rest, an army of 5,000 men was ready before the interval prescribed had elapsed. This army promptly made its way to Utica in order to support the Sufit's rear, while 3,000 of the most notable citizens embarked in vessels which were to land them at Hippo whence they were to drive back the barbarians. Hanno had accepted the command, but he entrusted the army to his lieutenant, Magdassin, so as to lead the troops which were to be disembarked himself, for he could no longer endure the shaking of the litter. His disease had eaten away his lips and nostrils, and he had hollowed out a large hole in his face. The back of his throat could be seen at a distance of ten paces, and he knew himself to be so hideous that he wore a veil over his head like a woman. Hipposeritus paid no attention to his summonings, nor yet to those of the barbarians, but every morning the inhabitants lowered provisions to the latter in baskets, and shouting from the tops of the towers pleaded the exigencies of the Republic and conjured them to withdraw. By means of signs they addressed the same protestations to the Carthaginians, who were stationed on the sea. Hanno contented himself with blockading the harbor without risking an attack, However, he permitted the judges of Hippo Zoritis to admit 300 soldiers. Then he departed to the Cape Grapes and made a long circuit so as to hem in the barbarians, an inopportune and even dangerous operation. His jealousy prevented him from relieving the Sufit. He arrested his spies, impeded him in all his plans, and compromised the success of the enterprise. At last, Hamilcar wrote to the great council to rid himself of Hanno, and the latter returned to Carthage, furious at the baseness of the ancients and the madness of his colleague. Hence, after so many hopes, the situation was now still more deplorable. But there was an effort not to reflect upon it, and not even to talk about it. As if all this were not sufficient misfortune at one time, news came that the Sardinian mercenaries had crucified their general, seized the strongholds, and everywhere slaughtered those of Canaanitish race. The Roman people threatened the Republic with immediate hostilities unless she gave 1,200 talents with the whole of the island of Sardinia. They had accepted the alliance of the barbarians, and they dispatched to them flat-bottomed boats laden with meal and dried meat. The Carthaginians pursued these and captured 500 men, but three days afterwards a fleet coming from Byzacena and conveying provisions to Carthage foundered in a storm. The gods were evidently declaring against her. Upon this, the citizens of Hippo Zoritis, upon pretense of an alarm, made Hanno's 300 men ascend their walls, and then coming behind them, they took them by the legs and suddenly threw them over the ramparts. 
Some who were not killed were pursued and went and drowned themselves in the sea. Utica was enduring the presence of soldiers, for Magdassan had acted like Hanno, and in accordance with his orders, and deaf to Hamilcar's prayers, was surrounding the town. As for these, they were given wine mixed with mandrake, and were then slaughtered in their sleep. At the same time, the barbarians arrived. Magdassan fled, the gates were opened, and thenceforth the two Tyrian towns displayed an obstinate devotion to their new friends and an inconceivable hatred to their former allies. This abandonment of the Punic cause was a counsel and a precedent. Hopes of deliverance revived. Populations hitherto uncertain hesitated no longer. Everywhere there was a stir. The Sufit learnt this, and he had no assistance to look for. He was now irrevocably lost. He immediately dismissed Narhavas, who was to guard the borders of his kingdom. As for himself, he resolved to re-enter Carthage in order to obtain soldiers and begin the war again. The barbarians posted at Hippozoritis perceived his army as it descended the mountain. Where could the Carthaginians be going? Hunger, no doubt, was urging them on, and distracted by their sufferings, they were coming, in spite of their weakness, to give battle. But they turned to the right. They were fleeing. They might be overtaken and all be crushed. The barbarians dashed in pursuit of them. The Carthaginians were checked by the river. It was wide this time, and the west wind had not been blowing. Some crossed by swimming, and the rest on their shields. They resumed their march. Night fell. They were out of sight. The barbarians did not stop. They went higher to find a narrower place. The people of Tunis hastened thither, bringing those of Utica along with them. Their numbers increased at every bush, and the Carthaginians, as they lay on the ground, could hear the tramping of their feet in the darkness. From time to time, Barca had a volley of arrows discharged behind him to check them, and several were killed. When day broke, they were in the Ariana Mountains, at the spot where the road makes a bend. Then Matho, who was marching at the head, thought that he could distinguish something green on the horizon, on the summit of an eminence. Then the ground sank, and obelisks, domes, and houses appeared. It was Carthage. He leaned against a tree to keep himself from falling. So rapidly did his heart beat. He thought of all that had come to pass in his existence since the last time that he had passed that way. It was an infinite surprise. It stunned him. And then he was transported with joy at the thought of seeing Salambo again. The reasons which he had for execrating her returned to his recollection, but he very quickly rejected them. Quivering and with straining eyeballs, he gazed at the lofty terrace of a palace above the palm trees beyond Eshmoon. A smile of ecstasy lighted his face as if some great light had reached him. He opened his arms and sent kisses on the breeze and murmured, Come, come. A sigh swelled his breast and two long tears like pearls fell upon his beard. What stays you, cried Spendius. Make haste, forward. The Suvet is going to escape us. But your knees are tottering. You're looking at me like a drunken man. He stamped with impatience and urged Matho, his eyes twinkling as at the approach of an object long aimed at. Ah, we have reached it. We are there. I have them. He had so convinced and triumphant an air, that Matho was surprised from his torpor, and felt himself carried away by it. 
These words, coming when his distress was at its height, drove his despair to vengeance and pointed to food for his wrath. He bounded upon one of the camels that were among the baggage, snatched up its halter, and with the long rope struck the stragglers with all his might, running right and left alternately in the rear of the army like a dog driving a flock. At this thundering voice, the lines of men closed up. Even the lame hurried their steps. The intervening space lessened in the middle of the isthmus. The foremost of the barbarians were marching in the dust raised by the Carthaginians. The two armies were coming close and were on the point of touching. But the Malqua Gate, the Tagast Gate, and the Great Gate of Camon threw wide their leaves. The Punic Square divided. Three columns were swallowed up and eddied beneath the porches. Soon, the mass, being too tightly packed, could advance no further. Pikes clashed in the air, and the arrows of the barbarians were shivering against the walls. Hamilcar was to be seen on the threshold of Camon. He turned round and shouted to his men to move aside. He dismounted from his horse, and pricking it on the croup with the sword which he held, sent it against the barbarians. It was a black stallion, which was fed on balls of meal, and would bend its knees to allow its master to mount. Why was he sending it away? Was this a sacrifice? The noble horse galloped into the midst of the lances, knocked down men, and entangling its feet in its entrails, fell down, then rose again with furious leaps, and while they were moving aside trying to stop it or looking at it in surprise, the Carthaginians had united again. They entered, and the enormous gate shut, echoing behind them. It would not yield. The barbarians came crushing against it, and for some minutes there was an oscillation throughout the army, which became weaker and weaker, and at last ceased. The Carthaginians had placed soldiers on the aqueduct. They began to hurl stones, balls, and beams. Spendius represented that it would be best not to persist. The barbarians went and posted themselves further off, all being quite resolved to lay siege to Carthage. however, had passed beyond the confines of the Punic Empire. And from the pillars of Hercules to beyond Cyrene, shepherds mused on it as they kept their flocks. And caravans talked about it in the light of the stars. This great Carthage, mistress of the seas, splendid as the sun and terrible as a god, actually found men who were daring enough to attack her. Her fall even had been asserted several times, and all had believed it, for all wished it. The subject populations, the tributary villages, the allied provinces, the independent hordes, those who execrated her for her tyranny, or were jealous of her power, or coveted her wealth. The bravest had very speedily joined the mercenaries. The defeat at the Makaras had checked all the rest. At last, they had recovered confidence, had gradually advanced and approached, and now the men of the eastern regions were lying on the sand hills of Clipea on the other side of the gulf. As soon as they perceived the barbarians, they showed themselves. They were not Libyans from the neighborhood of Carthage, who had long composed the third army, but nomads from the tableland of Barca, bandits from Cape Fiscus and the promontory of Derna, from Fazana and Marmarica. They had crossed the desert, drinking at the brackish wells walled in with camel's bones. 
The Zwakes, with their covering of ostrich feathers, had come on quadriga. The Garamantians, masked with black veils, rode behind on their painted mares. Others were mounted on asses, onagers, zebras, and buffalo, while some dragged after them the roofs of their sloop-shaped huts, together with their families and idols. There were Ammonians with limbs wrinkled by the hot water of the springs, Atarentians who cursed the sun, Troglodytes who bury their dead with laughter beneath branches of trees, and the hideous Ossians who eat grasshoppers, the Acromachidae who eat lice, and the vermilion-painted Gisantians who eat apes. All were ranged along the edge of the sea in a great straight line. Afterwards they advanced like tornadoes of sand raised by the wind. In the center of the isthmus the throng stopped, the mercenaries who were posted in front of them, close to the walls, being unwilling to move. Then from the direction of Ariana appeared the men of the west, the people of the Numidians. In fact, Narhavas governed only the Massilians, and, moreover, as they were permitted by custom to abandon their king when reverses were sustained, they had assembled on the Zynus, and then had crossed it at Hamilcar's first movement. First were seen running up all the hunters from Malathot Baal and Garaphos, clad in lion skins, and with the staves of their pikes, driving small, lean horses with long manes. Then marched the Getulians in cuirasses of serpent skin. Then the Ferusians, wearing lofty crowns made of wax and resin, and the Conians, Macarians, and Tilabarians, each holding two javelins and a round shield of hippopotamus leather. They stopped at the foot of the catacombs among the first pools of the lagoon. But when the Libyans had moved away, the multitude of the Negroes appeared, like a cloud on a level with the ground, in the place which the others had occupied. They were there from the White Harush, the Black Harush, the desert of Augila, and even from the great country of Agazimba, which is four months' journey south of the Garamantians, and from regions further still. In spite of their red wooden jewels, the filth of their black skin made them look like mulberries that had been long rolling in the dust. They had bark-thread drawers, dried grass tunics, fallow-deer muzzles on their heads. They shook rods furnished with rings and brandished cow's tails at the end of their sticks, after the fashion of standards, howling the while like wolves. Then, behind the Numidians, Marusians, and Getulians, pressed the yellowish men, who were spread throughout the cedar forests beyond Tagir. They had catskin quivers flapping against their shoulders, and they led in leashes enormous dogs, which were as high as asses, and did not bark. Finally, as though Africa had not been sufficiently emptied, and it had been necessary to seek further fury in the very dregs of the races, men might be seen behind the rest with beast-like profiles, and grinning with idiotic laughter, wretches ravaged by hideous diseases, deformed pygmies, mulattoes of doubtful sex, albinos whose red eyes blinked in the sun, stammering out unintelligible sounds. They put a finger into their mouths to show that they were hungry. The confusion of weapons was as great as that of garments and peoples. There was not a deadly invention that was not present, from wooden daggers, stone hatchets, and ivory tridents, to long saber-tooth-like saws, slender and formed of a yielding copper blade. They handled cutlasses which were forked into several branches like antelope's horns, bills fastened to the ends of ropes, iron triangles, clubs, and bodkins. The Ethiopians from the Bambotus had little poison darts hidden in their hair. Many had brought pebbles in bags. 
others empty-handed chattered with their teeth. This multitude was stirred with a ceaseless swell. Dromedaries, smeared all over with tar-like streaks, knocked down the women who carried their children on their hips. The provisions in the baskets were pouring out. In walking, pieces of salt, parcels of gum, rotten dates, and guru nuts were crushed underfoot. And sometimes on vermin-covered bosoms there would hang a slender cord supporting a diamond that the satraps had sought, an almost fabulous stone sufficient to purchase an empire. Most of them did not even know what they desired. They were impelled by fascination or curiosity, and nomads who had never seen a town were frightened by the shadows of the walls. The isthmus was now hidden by men, and this long surface, whereon the tents were like huts amid an inundation, stretched as far as the first lines of the other barbarians, which were streaming with steel and were posted symmetrically upon both sides of the aqueduct. The Carthaginians had not recovered from the terror caused by their arrival when they perceived the siege engines sent by the Tyrian towns coming straight towards them, like monsters and like buildings, with their masts, arms, ropes, articulations, capitals and carapaces, sixty carabalistas, eighty onagers, thirty scorpions, fifty tolenos, twelve rams, and three gigantic catapults, which hurled pieces of rock of the weight of fifteen talents. Masses of men clinging to their bases pushed them on. At every step, a quivering shook them, and in this way they arrived in front of the walls. But several days were still needed to finish the preparations for the siege. The mercenaries, taught by their defeats, would not risk themselves in useless engagements, and on both sides there was no haste, for it was well known that a terrible action was about to open, and that the result of it would be complete victory or complete extermination. Carthage might hold out for a long time. Her broad walls presented a series of re-entrant and projecting angles, an advantageous arrangement for repelling assaults. Nevertheless, a portion had fallen down in the direction of the catacombs, and on dark nights, lights could be seen in the dens of Malqua through the disjointed blocks. These, in some places, overlooked the top of the ramparts, and it was here that the mercenaries' wives, who had been driven away by Matho, were living with their new husbands. On seeing the men again, their hearts could stand it no longer. They waved their scarfs at a distance. Then they came and chatted in the darkness with the soldiers through the cleft in the wall. And one morning the great council learned that they had all fled. Some had passed through between the stones. Others with greater intrepidity had let themselves down with ropes. At last, Spendius resolved to accomplish his design. The war, by keeping him at a distance, had hitherto prevented him, and since the return to Carthage it seemed to him that the inhabitants suspected his enterprise. But soon they diminished the sentries on the aqueduct. There were not too many people for the defense of the walls. The former slave practiced himself for some days in shooting arrows at the flamingos on the lake. Then, one moonlight evening, he begged Matho to light a great fire of straw in the middle of the night, while all his men were to shout at the same time. And taking Xarxus with him, he went away along the edge of the gulf in the direction of Tunis. When on a level with the last arches, they returned straight towards the aqueduct. The place was unprotected. They crawled to the base of the pillars. 
The sentries on the platform were walking quietly up and down. Towering flames appeared. Clarions rang, and the soldiers on vedette, believing that there was an assault, rushed away in the direction of Carthage. One man had remained. He showed black against the background of the sky. The moon was shining behind him, and a shadow, which was of extravagant size, looked in the distance like an obelisk proceeding across the plain. They waited until he was in position just before them. Xarxas seized his sling, but whether from prudence or from ferocity, Spendius stopped him. No, the whiz of the bullet would make a noise. Let me. Then he bent his bow with all his strength, resting the lower end of it against the great toe of his left boot. He took aim, and the arrow went off. The man did not fall. He disappeared. If he were wounded, we should hear him, said Spendius, and he mounted quickly from story to story as he had done the first time, with the assistance of a rope and a harpoon. Then when he had reached the top and was beside the corpse, he let it fall again. The Balearan fastened a pick and a mallet to it and turned back. The trumpets sounded no longer. All was now quiet. Spendius had raised one of the flagstones and, entering the water, had closed it behind him. Calculating the distance by the number of his steps, he arrived at the exact spot where he had noticed an oblique fissure, and for three hours until morning he worked in continuous and furious fashion, breathing with difficulty through the interstices in the upper flagstones, assailed with anguish, and twenty times believing that he was going to die. At last, a crack was heard and a huge stone ricocheting on the lower arches rolled to the ground. And suddenly, a cataract, an entire river, fell from the skies onto the plain. The aqueduct, being cut through in the center, was emptying itself. It was death to Carthage, and victory for the barbarians. Now, in an instant, the awakened Carthaginians appeared on the walls, the houses, and the temples, the barbarians pressed forward with shouts. They danced in delirium around the great waterfall and came up and wet their heads in it in the extravagance of joy. A man in a torn brown tunic was perceived on the summit of the aqueduct. He stood leaning over the very edge with both hands on his hips and was looking down below him as though astonished at his work. Then he drew himself up he surveyed the horizon with a haughty air, which seemed to say, All that is now mine. The applause of the barbarians burst forth, while the Carthaginians, comprehending their disaster at last, shrieked with despair. Then he began to run about the platform from one end to the other, and like a chariot driver triumphant at the Olympic Games, Spendius, distraught with pride, raised his arms aloft. That was chapter 12 of Eli Reed's Salambo. Thank you so much for being here with me reading this book. We don't actually have that much longer to go. Only three more chapters. There are probably the most brutal scenes in the entire book, though. Flaubert has been saving them up. So uh, get ready for that, and I'll see you in Chapter 13. Hold up. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 